Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't. exteriones equal to. Arriba. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. And I am Joel Dahlkes Kulboy. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% humor, which I think is apropos for today's episode. Oh, nice. Where are you in the world, Brian? I'm back in London, but I was just in Stockholm. Where in the world are you, Joel? I am in Copenhagen, but I was just in Stockholm. That's right, everyone. Our world's collided for Joel's, uh, the defense of his dissertation. Mm, I've just spent more or less 36 hours talking about myself or listening to other people talk about myself, but I can do another 15, 20 minutes. Let's talk about that. First, I should just uh, go over the IO Reporter sponsor. Yes. Investment Arbitration Reporter is also known as IO Reporter, which is our sponsor for season three. It's an online service focused on international investment law. For more than 10 years, IO Reporter has offered up to the minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis, as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, visit iareporter.com. There you go. A couple more plugs. We have the third ICC European Conference, which is the lead-up event for the Paris Arbitration Week, which is the 1st of April 2019. Registration is still open. Uh, You can no longer get early bird tickets, but you can get the regular tickets for members and non-members. There's also a discount package if you want to get um, the the first conference on the April 1st, the Paris Arbitration Reopening Cocktail, and also a training program, uh, which would follow on the 3rd. Um, let us know what you think of the program. Um, we will also, Joel and I will be traveling to DC the week after um, to go to the 13th Annual Investment Treaty Arbitration Conference sponsored by Juris Conferences, LLC. They are. Um, they have four panels, fan, four panel discussions, and Joel and I will be debating how, should costs follow the event or should they not. And those are our plugs. Well, I said that I'm going to Paris, but I don't know because of Brexit. Hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry for you, but you also moved to London, so it's on you. <laughs> so eat it. <laughs> but um, the departure date was pushed back by at least two weeks. Um, Your departure to Paris or UK's departure from (laughs) the civilized world? The UK's departure has been proposed to move forward to April 12th for EU leaders to consider. That's just enough time for you to go to Paris and stay. Yes. Indefinitely. Hopefully there's no um, strikes because that happened. There was an Uber strike last time I was in Paris. So (laughs) let's keep it interesting, Paris. (laughs) Um, So Joel, I attended... The wedding, your wedding. 
your second wedding, your wedding to arbitration, or your wedding to yourself, however you looked at yeah, it. Yeah, because just let me put it on the record that you did not attend my actual wedding like four years ago because you were in a, in a hearing or had a submission or something and had to cancel last minute. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to make that comment, actually. I was in one of the speeches for, at the dinner that I was making up for lost time by coming to your second wedding. Uh-huh. But it really was. You're You're done. I am. It's... It's not, I'm done. I wouldn't say I'm done necessarily. Academia is nice and all, but I, now I can return to being a full-time podcast host and arbitration influencer. <laughs> but you're officially a doctor, is that correct? That is correct, sir. Are you going to be one of those people that corrects other people for not using the right title? No, okay. I'm not going to not use it myself that much, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Dr. DC, so tell us about the format, about how it felt, your preparation, everything. You tell me. I feel like I've been talking about this in expectation of this in at least 12 independent uh, episodes. How how did you perceive it? You, you were awake and present even during the defense and all the formalities, so like a three-hour Well, I was definitely grilling. present. Uh, <laughs> just, kidding. <laughs> just kidding. No, I was awake. Um, it was... So Joel was seated across from the opponent, uh, which was who, Joel? Freya Battens. And who works, who teaches at the University of Oslo and the University of Leiden. Um, but it's and also, also practices, I think, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you guys were sitting up there, and then you had your supervisor, which was Kai Hobert, and then you had three um, people on your grading panel, which included Andre Bjorklund, someone yeah. from Uppsala University. Yeah, Inger Østerdal. And then the third person? Uh, Eric de Brabandere. Exactly. It was the the last name heard around the world. Um, And you, so it started out with the opponent giving kind of like a presentation of your thesis. And what's the purpose of that to kind of make sure that everyone's on the same page and to realize that she understood what you were talking about? Yeah, I think so. Because I was also given the opportunity to supplement what she said so that we're like on the same page before the actual uh, questioning or discussion starts and also for the you know the benefit of the auditorium all the people attending because it's a public defense and not everyone has read it so it's it's time well spent generally to have like a 20 25 minute summary at the outset yeah no it was definitely good for me because i did not read your your book um, yet, yet not yet it, it will be my summer reading but um or maybe sooner i'll give that to you um but then after the presentation she sits down next to you and you guys go into a little tete-a-tete about some <laughs> questions she has on your dissertation, right? Yeah, exactly. Some of them tough, some of them uh, more of an opportunity for me to, you know, stretch my legs and and show that I master the field more generally. The softball questions versus the hardball questions. Yes, that's how we operate in a, in a podcast world as well. But, I mean, Joel, sometimes you got a little sassy on her, I have to say. What? Yes. Well, I'm sorry. I hope that <laughs> when you had that question about um, Switzerland, and I forget what exactly the question entailed, but it was that it was a hypothetical question about the seat being Switzerland, but the parties had chosen. Oh, it was if they had created a parallel institution similar to ICSID, but that was non-ICSID. Remember that question? Yeah, yeah, I do. But that was very much towards the end, maybe one of the last few questions, and my my brain had melted. I I, I honestly just had 
problems following the questions because it was like a three-step question and that right. was not not on the opponent that was on me just being down to 10 percent brain function the way you handled it was the way i handled my moot court quarter f- or elimination rounds in the vis that got us eliminated <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was like this long drawn out hypothetical question with multiple parts and instead of like engaging and trying to be like helpful you're just like what did you just say? <laughs> and then she had to break it down like one, two, three. Were you nervous by these questions? She didn't tell you any of the questions beforehand, right? You had no contact with her. No, I sent her the book. That was the extent of it. Uh, but yeah, I, I was I was obviously nervous, uh, at least like a couple of days before. But then on the very day, it's like a big exam or a big hearing or anything like that. You know that it's out of your hands and you can't prepare anymore. It's just like wake up and, and go and, and do the thing. Yeah get it over with uh but no not no not not during the whole exercise i have to say because you're like focused and and inside of it and you really try to uh grasp and then uh, respond to the questions so I, it it just i felt like it flew by but obviously it did because it was like three and a half hours and you could see some other people in the in the auditorium zoning out <laughs> i mean i actually i thought it went a lot quicker than three and a half hours to be fair um granted i was i had to work through some of it but uh it was um no i thought it was really engaging and then after so after that's done there's no like she could it's not like she would stop you and be like no cut it off you didn't you're not good enough to go on to the grading committee you will always go on to the grading committee right yeah there are rumors that it's been stopped really Uh, yeah Maybe not necessarily by the opponent. I don't really know how it would function. I mean, the idea is, of course, that at this point, it should not be the case that it's even on the table that you won't move on because it should have been stopped way earlier in the process. Is the purpose of this to um, kind of double check plagiarism? No, that's done by some sort of automatic AI system. I'm just thinking, like, if you actually wrote this piece, I mean, it's going to be quite difficult for them, for you not to just, like, walk around the room with your pros on every topic that's even adjacent to the central thesis topic. Yeah, that is true. But yeah, so I mean, in practice, it is, of course, also a test of like, the fact that it's actually you who wrote what you claim to have written. Exactly. That's what I yeah, that's what I was thinking about. But it's also you know, it's like a it's like a driver's test, basically, to show that you're now part of the academic world. And then once you have the doctorate, it's like a driver's license, and no one will ever ask you any questions again, you can just keep on driving recklessly for 50 years, because you passed it once. So it's nice to have it behind me. Yes. So then the grading committee pops in and Andrea Bjorklund was first. And right. she asked she I mean, she gave some incredible insight, but just more on her own experience because i mean she was such a great person to have on that panel since she attended the bg versus romania argentina argentina sorry um proceedings in the new york courts yeah and she used to represent the u.s and like nafta arbitrations and and right the ancient 1990s and basically what she was saying is that it was no one really had a grasp of basic arbitration concepts wasn't that like her takeaway from her experience from those proceedings yeah i think that would be a fair condensation of of what she said and then she asked a a whole bunch of questions on on that case and more generally on on cases where 3d interpretation issues come up in in domestic courts which was helpful because it felt like it was part of a real world problem Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because at some point it did get pretty academic as far as like creating parallel institutions that would require state consent and blah, 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 blah. 
Um, but I, you had like a like a good academic. You had you know recall of cases, recall of facts of cases, differentiation, my like minutia and differentiations between the cases. Because there was some um, case, I don't know if it was that one or the other one, where you had to really like pull back. And I saw Kai like nodding during your answer, and I was like, proud father. <laughs> um, and then you got some philosophical questions from the <laughs> Uppsala professor. Saying, why did you think that they did this? But then she got into an interesting uh, question about um, the Vienna Convention and whether you can interpret bilateral investment treaties the same as multilateral investment treaties as regards, or whether you can derive, whether you can use the intent of the party. What was what was her question? Yeah, it, it was also a, like a multi-pronged question, but right. it, had to, it had to do with the difference between a contract interpretation on, on the one hand and treaty interpretation on the other and the extent to which the intentions of the parties are part of the Vienna Convention treaty interpretation rules. And then she also asked if there's a difference or should be a difference between bilateral or multilateral treaties. Yeah, because, yeah. that seems like a, it seems like an interesting question. Um, yeah, but that's she's she's a like a general international lawyer. So that that was a general international lawyer's question because she's she's very good at this treaty interpretation, which is one of those things that you know overlaps right. over different kinds of of international law subject. I think that's where she felt that there was some tension that she could explore, uh, although she wasn't you know a, an arbitration specialist per se. Right. It's funny how everyone played to their strengths, huh? It's like yeah, <laughs> that's what um, we all do. And then the next step basically was any questions from the audience, which you got a total of zero. Yeah, which I think is customary, at least after three and a half hours. You don't want to be the person who's like, yeah, page 294. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wants to go have lunch. Right. So then we all went and had lunch while the grading committee deliberated. And at this point, how did you feel? Empty and tired. I, I afterwards now I realized there were a lot of people there that I barely talked to or maybe even said hello to because I was just like in my own bubble, you know, just like exhausted and high on adrenaline and confused. And then, I mean, yeah, it's like almost like post hearing blues, right? Where you've just given it your all, your brain has been completely sucked out, and yeah, exactly. And then you're supposed to mingle and thank each and every person individually for being there and just like showing you know that you're that you care but it was hard as so i i apologize to those who were there and i if i wasn't nice to you <laughs> joel was um even handing out signatures at the end <laughs> yeah i signed a few copies <laughs> <laughs> um because you had some of your students there from the Uppsala program which was nice that they were able to come invited to come and and did come yeah, I love that. That's a good sign of eager students if they take Friday off to attend a doctoral defense just because they're interested in, in the substance. Yeah, I mean, I think your topic, I, I don't want to say it's broad because, I mean, it's quite specific, but it's it's still broad enough that it can pique someone's interest versus like, you know, an analysis on like a data protection law from like, you know, a new data protection law. Like, you know, it was something that's like so specific that unless you're really into ingrained in that in that specific law you wouldn't even understand what's going on in the dissertation but i thought yours was and maybe this is the same for all arbitration dissertations but like you were able to follow along you know what i mean you yeah didn't think but i think were... it also comes down a lot to the fact that you work in this field <laughs> fair i'm not, I'm not fair. sure a data protection lawyer would feel the same they would feel this is very very 
detailed and nerdy. <laughs> nerdy for sure. Um, <laughs> and then they walk out with beaming smiles, no poker faces whatsoever. Um, they walk out with be- beaming smiles, and then um, the Uppsala professor, which I think is customary, um, gave you your fate, which was a pass. Right. And, and then, I was happy, and there were champagne and bottles being and, opened, and gifts, and, and a few speeches, and that was very nice. Now, how did you prepare from submitting the dissertation to the actual defense? Not as much as I should have. I think, because <laughs> I had so many other things that piled up, uh, things that could actually pay the bills, uh, since I don't <laughs> didn't get any salary anymore from from the faculty. So basically, towards like maybe w- one week before I really sat down, because I allowed myself a few weeks after submitting when I didn't look at it, and I think I had almost two months in total in between submitting and defending. So I took the first almost the first month off, just like left it there. on a table without reading it and then I sat down and I started going over things and I realized that some of it I wrote in 2015 (laughs) so I had to just like refresh my mind and I took some notes and especially since I deal with so many cases both uh, commercial awards at ICC and SEC and domestic court judgments I I had to read up on them again and I took notes just like summarizing you know there are seven different challenges in Canadian courts. I had to be able to keep them apart if right. I got questions on Canadian case law, for example. So I just like summarize it. I think basically the way most law students or lawyers would approach a similar thing, you just like try to break things down and have shorthand, like sh- mm-hmm. uh, shortcuts available to you uh, in case something comes up. But you're able to have notes and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, a- absolutely. How does this type of defense compare to other defenses that you've seen? I've never been to one outside of Sweden. I only have like anecdotal evidence, and uh, it, it tends to be. I I tend to think that the one that I know, which is the Swedish model, is the best, which is always the case. You know that you're so biased in favor of of your own background. Right. right. So I've only heard about others, and they differ so much from just like a, a closed door one hour examination by a stern professor to similar things to like in other i think luxembourg and belgium and other places you know they all dress up and it's very ceremonial and judging from pictures i've seen it seems to be like an icj hearing oh like very formalized and in finland it's the same they i think you need to have i think yeah there's a dress code in finland for doctoral defenses uh, like the tails so the opponent comes and like looks like a you know a conductor <laughs> well speaking of tails you invited us to an informal dinner after, um, yeah. which is not informal at all. It was completely formal with suits and women with long gowns. And uh, in this beautiful um, Nahoon, which is like, what would you call it? Like a dining club? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's basically like a college in, um, in Oxford or Cambridge or like th- that kind of university, but less rich. And, and more social focus than like living. Yeah, and... exactly, exactly. Basically, most students, ninety-nine percent, are members of a nation, and you can go there and eat very cheap food, or just hang out and socialize and be part of different clubs and stuff like that. And then there were speeches, there was dinner, there was wine, there was good conversation. You sat me next yeah. to Andrea, which was very nice. Um, and you were there all night, danced the night away. Yeah. And then I woke up and realized I have to get to work. <laughs> it must feel weird. It must feel weird. Your four years, four and a half years of of focus, or at least like a distant focus, um, is now behind you. Yeah, it does feel empty. 
but I seriously, I've never had more work than I have right now because I, I only have myself to blame, but I put so many other projects on hold and now they all just like converge this week and the next basically I have to do right. so many separate things. So I, I won't really have time, but as our listeners know, I'm going to the, to the U S and uh, most of it is work, but some of it I'll try to enjoy as well and kick back and Good. actually think about this. Yes. Well, I'm yeah. happy it's over behind us because um, you can be a better friend. And just kidding. And <laughs> that's true, actually. And you can uh, bring more clout to the podcast. I mean, now you're no longer the doctoral candidate co-host. <laughs> that's true. But I'm also formally unemployed. I'm not tied to any particular university anymore. So that, that sort of takes a little bit of the edge off. With being a doctoral candidate at University X is almost as good as being just like a lawyer with a degree was this you just trying to tell our listeners that you are looking for a job oh no 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 <laughs> i'm not i'm not gonna work anymore <laughs> ever again i'm very content with life the way it is do, do you we, have any I, yeah one uh, last question do you have any yeah. tips or reflections that to give to people maybe going through their phd right now good thanks what i wanted was to get away from the focus on me and this was a good okay. way to do that. thank you man <laughs> yes i i have the same uh, tip that I got from all the other people I spoke to who did this before and it's that it's nice and just fun to defend your dissertation of course you'll be a, a nervous wreck that's part of it but as you are you should be aware that once the day comes it's just going to be a thrill because it's it's very rare that you get to sit down for hours talking about your own research with a person who's actually read it and there are people listening and they can't leave the room <laughs> that's True. never going to happen again that's never going to happen again as an academic and you should cherish that moment and if it's not a complete moron on the other side who's just like a, a mean bond villain character it's going to be a pleasant conversation and you're going to enjoy it so uh, I, I think that's a good thing to keep in mind that it's it's not scary it's fun the actual defense the actual defense yeah. well you're talking more about the general process because then i would like to refer you to the first episode of the podcast the arbitration station there we go love a cross-reference should we <laughs> uh move on to a substantive topic the only one that we have i yes. think more or less that is true we will joel will be taking that topic yeah now i'm back in business and i will uh move in and take over the arbitration station more or less, so you can relax a little bit after having carried this when I was trying to finish my doctorate. <laughs> and the topic in question is non-participation in arbitration, primarily non-participating parties and what to do when parties do not participate. We'll also say a few words on non-participating arbitrators, just because that's fun. <laughs> um, and then we'll move right on to the happy fun time, which we will be talking about really long overdue, actually. Um, humor and arbitration. This came to us from Frederick Rehnquist in Moscow, uh, this topic suggestion. Um, and I think it's a great topic because A, we're hilarious. And B, um, it's, it's an interesting um, fine line that a lot of practicing lawyers and maybe even academics as well do when they're writing, but also pleading and also just engaging in conversation with other lawyers or at conferences. What role does humor play and what role should humor play um, in all those different contexts? That's a great point. It's a less uh, finer line for us, but there's still a line somewhere. Yes. <laughs> and hopefully we'll find it. Let's go. So, 
So, non-participation or non-attendance, it's often feared by arbitrating parties on the basis that it may allegedly jeopardize the enforcement of the award. We've talked about this, we touched upon this in some other contexts in the past. Um, from an arbitrator's point of view, I think it's fair to say that the absence of a party at a hearing may um, probably also should impact uh, his or her role at the hearing. In particular, it's been argued in, in several different places that the tribunal should go as far as stepping into the shoes of the absent party, uh, testing the present party, basically, you know, the evidence of the arguments brought by the party that is there. Um, but it's also the case, as we all know, that arbitrators are bound by their duty to act fairly and impartially. And uh, just the fact that a party is absent doesn't necessarily justify a departure from that obligation. So the question for us is therefore how the tribunal's duty to act fairly should be discharged in, in circumstances where one party is absent. And here I think it's useful for context to recall domestic approaches. I'm talking litigation now. And, and domestic jurisdictions differ considerably on how the similar situation to the one I'm talking about where one party doesn't show up in an arbitration is regulated. Uh, in, in that scenario, many jurisdictions allow for default judgments, i.e. a judgment that is basically just an incorporation of the participating party's prayer for relief. So you don't show up, the other party automatically gets what it wants, basically. Uh, is that the case? It is in some, at least some U.S. states, right, that you do have default judgments. Exactly. No, yeah. If you don't show up or don't submit something to the court, even on time, you yeah. can get a default judgment. Yeah. And I mean, that, of course, presupposes that you've been properly notified. But we'll get back to that, I think. First, we should get back to arbitration. Oh, okay. We don't Scared care about me. litigation. Hey, no. <laughs> I hate talking about litigation. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? No litigation, no mediation, except for very rare specific circumstances on this podcast. If we're forced to, according to our clause, but yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what kinds of... Um, party default do we have uh, I just realized that's a not an optimal phrase when I use the word default <laughs> judgment but you know you all know what I mean what kind of absence or non-participation are we talking about and it can occur actually at many and uh, sometimes many m multiple stages at the same time during the process so in any one arbitration uh, you can have a party that is on and off so to speak and participates and then does not participate so it's not just a case that we have parties that don't show up in the first place and the whole thing has to be done without their uh, being present. Um, for example, the respondent may be uh, reluctant to or may end up not responding to a notice of arbitration, could also fail to participate in the appointment of an arbitrator or fail to pay its share of the deposit to the relevant institution, the advance on costs. And afterwards, when the proceedings are underway, the party may fail to comply with directions to uh, to uh, plead its case the way the tribunal wishes it to do. Uh, witness statements, uh, evidentiary hearings, uh, stuff like that. Basically, a tribunal may be confronted with the vision of an empty chair uh, in many different scenarios. And thereafter, of course, uh, the absent party may also fail to serve any submissions it's been uh, instructed to do uh, 
or otherwise just uh, act along the way in a way it's expected to. Right. Which means that we have to seek guidance in applicable rules and see what do we do in these various scenarios. And provided, of course, which is always the case, party autonomy, kids, if there's no regulation in the arbitration agreement, Mm -hmm. which I think it's incredibly rare. I've never seen or even heard of a clause where how the tribunal should act in the absence of a party has been regulated. Have you? No, no, I have not seen that. That that level of detail is, of course, not part of the midnight clause very often. I think it's fair to say. Right. So we have to turn to all the various arbitral rules or leges loci arbitri. Uh, but I won't go through them. I'll just say that they typically themselves do not regulate this. So we're back to... Well, they do regulate it, but they don't give a lot of guidance and afford the tribunal wide discretion to act the way it sees fit under the circumstances. And depending on why and how the party is not participating, they may act differently as, as the tribunal. So why discretion? Then we have the scenario that I found the most interesting ones and I have been looking at in different contexts and I think you are probably also faced it because you used to work at the SEC similar to me and that is the failure to appoint an arbitrator that's an interesting scenario I think Mm -hmm. and then typically or hopefully you have an appointing authority and if you don't if it's pure ad hoc you may have a domestic court under the domestic law of the jurisdiction that you can go to in case a party does not appoint an arbitrator. And I think we can say that in this case, the party in question is the respondent. Right. (laughs) For obvious reasons. And then what do you do as an appointing authority? And this is something that I've been playing around with. Maybe I should do some more research into this. Like what considerations go into this? You are an appointing authority. A claimant comes to you and says, the respondent does not appoint an arbitrator. Please appoint for us or for them rather than for the respondent. Yeah. What should you do then as the appointing authority? Well, you should, of course, appoint an arbitrator, but what considerations should guide which arbitrator you do appoint? Well, I did something similar to this at the SEC when I was working at council. Um, that when there was a defaulting party, you had to choose an arbitrator. And because that also, it's a bit different as well if the if it's part of the rules or part of how the procedure is in the arbitration clause that the third part, that the third arbitrator will be chosen by the appointing authority or the institution as well, because then you have basically the institution getting a majority of the appointees. Um, and then the one party who's the only participating party has the third. Um, and I just raise that now because as, and this is exactly, and maybe you're going to get into this and how an arbitrator should react um, when there isn't a participating party, but you have to be as neutral as possible. So to avoid, especially in a reviewing court um, on a set aside or challenge that you would, you know, show that there was really no semblance at all of anything that could be considered, um, you know, not, not biased, but, you know, adverse to the non-participant party. Yeah, right, because that is the background against which this whole discussion is taking place, of course, as I mentioned initially, that it's the non-enforcement or the set-aside of the award. It's like a shadow hanging over mm-hmm. all of this, and you have to keep that in mind. But if we're back to the um, the appointment procedure yes. here, and this, um, I think Luke, I reporter Luke, did something a few years back on this when he had looked at how who was appointed not a lot of analysis but a lot of like legwork digging up who was appointed 
when institutions appoint on behalf of states to see if there are patterns. And I don't recall the exact outcome of what he did, but I'm just mentioning that because it's interesting then, given what we just said about the risk of set aside, it's very hard to find an arbitrator, in particular if you're also, as you said, uh, appointing the third arbitrator. You need to ensure that the arbitrator you appoint on behalf of the defaulting party is like beyond reproach which depending on the facts of the case might be very tricky actually mm-hmm. uh, so you have to take into account the nationalities of of the parties any relevant terms of the arbitration agreement languages uh, the profile of of the other arbitrators or arbitrator and counsel the subject matter all of these things that parties otherwise do but here you have to do it sort of vicariously and try to figure out what would the party had preferred had it been here which might be complicated if the party is like a state that you've never had any interactions with in the past as an arbitral institutions right so uh, typically um, I think it's fair to say that the appointing authority will seek to appoint an arbitrator of the same nationality uh, or at least almost as the respondent party. And I say almost because sometimes it's not possible to appoint an arbitrator of the same nationality. So then you go for someone of a nationality that is sort of similar to the non-participating party, uh, like a, a Danish arbitrator would represent a Swedish company pretty well, presumably, because right. it's culturally close and you know legal system, language, political structure, stuff like that. Or, and yeah, now it came back to me now. And and um, one thing that Luke pointed out in in the article that's a few years old is that the SEC, for example, often appointed um, Russian speakers uh, or people from like a, the former Soviet bloc on behalf of states from there. So that goes to the same general thing that you said with Sweden and Denmark, that you could appoint a Russian arbitrator on behalf of Kazakhstan, for example, or, or the other way around. Right. Oh, so it wasn't like specific individuals that got repeat appointments. It was just like characteristics. Yes, exactly. Uh, which is, is very interesting because it's, like, it's a lot of due process involved here, um, which I think is interesting. And I mean, this is one of the instances where I maybe I'll contradict you what you've said previously on the podcast, where the due process paranoia is actually justified. Yeah, yeah, no, they <laughs> they have to absolutely because here you know more or less guaranteed if you have a party that does not participate, that party is going to try to make it complicated after the award has been rendered as well. Yeah, and it would be so easy for them to be successful. That's the problem. Yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> Uh, so you must also, for due process reasons, of course, then in this appointment scenario, make sure not just that you follow the party's arbitration agreement, but also that the non-participating party has been properly notified of the arbitration, ideally also of the fact that an arbitrator will be appointed on their behalf if they do not act, uh, and give them the chance to present their case. So any prudent appointing authority here would of course you know send out as much we talked about this in the notification uh, segment that you just give the other party an opportunity to react and wait for an appropriate amount of time at least a few weeks before you act and just you don't just move along mm-hmm. we have not mentioned CRB a lot in the history of the podcast what what do we have on CRB are you as ignorant as I am C-I-A-R-B <laughs> Uh, I know that it's the Chartered Institute for Arbitrators, and I've referenced them once or twice, um, their guidelines for arbitrators, that which, is, is, more, which is actually quite less, good. 
Yeah, good, because that's word by word the extent of my knowledge. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so we'll have to remedy that some other time. Apologies to any CR uh, employees that we may have met in the past. Um, but they have um, guidelines. I should just mention this for uh, what to do, practical steps for arbitrators to take when the party does not participate, when a party does not participate, I should say. I'm not uh, going to... Maybe that's when I them. cited them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay, that... <laughs> so it comes back to you. Got it, okay. Yeah, but I mean, it's all about uh, making sure that the party uh, gets its, its uh, chance. Should we move on to the favorite part of any substantive segments, i.e. actual cases? Yes. Get, get some meat on the bone. We have a case in the High Court in London, which is a good illustration of uh, the tribunal's duty to ensure procedural fairness uh, in this scenario that we've been talking about. The High Court dismissed an application to null an, uh, an arbitral award rendered by a sole arbitrator sitting in London. And one of the uh, grounds relied upon by the party wishing to challenge the award was that that party uh, did not attend a procedural conference call and did not attend the evidentiary hearing. So let me just give you the, the basic facts like my opponent did at the doctoral dissertation so that we can all follow along know what we're talking about. Uh, the disputing question here related to an agency agreement between Interprods and a banknote supplier, Delarue, in Nigeria. Delarue terminated the agreement with Interprods uh, on the basis of an alleged representation by Interprods that commissions paid by Delarue to Interprods would be used to bribe the Nigerian authorities. So Delarue, the Nigerian company, then commenced an LCIA arbitration against Interprods with a view to obtaining a declaration that it was entitled to terminate the agreement. Mm -hmm. And a sole arbitrator was appointed, and after hearing the party's submissions on bifurcation, the arbitrator ordered that two issues be determined as preliminary issues. And there were two consecutive adjournments of the evidentiary hearing on these preliminary issues, both of which were sought successfully by Interprods. So Interprods prolonged the dispute. Then Delarue suggested that a conference call be held for the purpose of fixing the hearing, finally. And the arbitrator suggested two dates for this conference call and inquired about the party's availability on these dates. Um, despite Interprods' alleged inability to participate in this conference call on either of the two suggested dates, the procedural conference call took place without any participation by or on behalf of Interprods. And during this conference call, with no Interprods present, the arbitrator provided two dates for the hearing from which Interprod was able to choose with a default date in case Interprods failed to make a choice. Interprods then complained about the arbitrator's decision, decision and attempted to have the arbitrator removed by the LCIA, but that didn't fly. So the evidentiary hearing went ahead before the arbitrator. Interprods, which should come as no surprise at this point, uh, submitted an unsigned, uh, an un, sorry, submitted an unsigned and undated witness statement from its CEO on the eve of the hearing and didn't appear at the hearing without giving any reasons. And a few months after the hearing, the arbitrator rendered a partial award 
in favor of Delarue, the participating party. So enter court case. The non-participating non-participating party enterprise then challenged the award and tried to have it annulled at the seat of arbitration in London. And they attacked, of course, these uh, alleged serious irregularities relating to the fixing and holding of the hearings. But it didn't fly. And the high court found that um, the actions or failures to act on behalf of the arbitrator did not amount to a serious irregularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way I just recounted the facts, that seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Yeah. No, it does. I mean, because the, the bar is quite high, so... Yeah, it, it really is. And here, the arbitrator had done uh, his or her best uh, to ensure that the party had the opportunity to participate, which is not the same thing as actually participating. Right. Uh, that's, and, a, that's a key thing to point there. That's a good Yeah, point. it really is. Um, sorry. It, it also parallels to what you were talking about, uh, to another segment we have on service, as far as... Um, making sure that they're aware. I mean, this was talking about a hearing, but if you're just talking about like the the initiating an arbitration and trying to get them to respond or have an answer, um, you know, if they're not even answering your notice of arbitration, you know, you need to show that you've served them and you just show that they, you can move the case forward even without them. Um, And I don't, it it depends on which country you're serving, of course, because in Mm. the UK, you have to be served personally well under the Hague convention but maybe under like an arbitration it would be different but there's certain rules in certain jurisdictions where it would require kind of it's not just it has to be like actual personal service versus like constructive service or you know posting it in in the main square uh that you would have to have some sort of evidence to show that you've made every attempt possible to yeah to contact them before you can move forward and i think it's analogous to what you're talking about here yeah and i mean in this case interprods had i mean without dispute been notified and in fact interacted a lot with the sole arbitrator yeah they they just failed to agree to dates and then when one date was set regardless they just failed to show up or instruct lawyers to uh, show up on behalf of them yeah Uh, and they didn't really provide reasons for this which was also uh, an important part of the court's decision that uh, because it was under the uncertain rules i think even though the lca was the appointing authority and under the uncertain rules a party, uh, if notified, may fail to appear, of course, but you have to show sufficient costs. And in this case, there were no such sufficient costs. Basically. Right. You want more cases, Brian? And I promise you there are 60. Yeah, give me a case. Interstate cases, which we Ooh. rarely bring up. And we have to. Maybe we should open a future potential fourth season with some interstate stuff, because that's actually something we should have done before. And they tend to be sexy cases. Oh, yeah, we have someone to interview for that. We do? Yeah, Greg. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, we should have. Okay, yeah. That, that's probably on us that we haven't so far. Sorry, Greg. Yeah, we'll, now we'll it's in the atmosphere. Fun. Now it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> now we have to do it. So this case, we all know about. It's the Arctic Sunrise case. And from from for the uh, final parts of this segment, there's going to be a lot of Russia, maybe. No. I'll just, <laughs> we'll, we'll focus on this. We, it's a lot of Russia okay. on the arbitration station. But here, the Arctic Sunrise is the, uh, the Greenpeace case, you know, where Russia detained the uh, Greenpeace ship that was called Arctic Sunrise, probably still is, and uh, detained Greenpeace activists and freelance journalists in in September 2013. And they were there protesting against oil drilling 
uh, in Russia's exclusive economic zone. And they were initially charged, the the people on the ship, with piracy uh, in Russia, later downgraded to hooliganism, I think. Uh, both the detainees and the ship have been released following a successful application by the Netherlands to ITLOS, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, in Hamburg. Mm-hmm. So it was an application for interim measures, basically. But that procedure took place without Russia having uh, been present. Um, and, and so basically, Russia refused to participate in a in a creative way that makes you... Uh, admire Russian diplomatic <laughs> tactics. Right. So they, Russia just communicated its position through diplomatic uh, not verbal, uh, verbal notes, uh, which aren't really verbal, sent to the Netherlands and to the PZA, which was the registry in the state-to-state arbitration, basically just saying, you know, we refuse to take part in this arbitration and we will not provide any comments on substance or anything else on this. Thank you very much. End of diplomatic cable. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, may or may not be a jurisdictional objection, depending on how generous you are in interpreting submissions. And so uh, let me just quote how the uh, ITLOS tribunal, in this case, uh, dealt with this fact that Russia had communicated, but only to say that we won't communicate any further. I'm quoting now. Russia's non-participation in the proceedings has made the tribunal's task more challenging than usual. In particular, it has deprived the tribunal of the benefit of Russia's views on the factual issues before it and on the legal arguments advanced by the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. The tribunal has taken measures to ensure that it has the information it considers necessary to reach the findings contained in this award. These measures include the issuance on three occasions of further questions to the Netherlands on issues arising out of its written or oral pleadings. Members of the tribunal also put questions to the witnesses presented by the Netherlands at the hearing. So basically, we're we, we we got your back somewhat, Russia. It wasn't a sham. Well, that's a really good point. If you don't mind me interjecting right now, the um, the tribunal does have a duty to kind of represent the non-participating party in the sense to keep everything neutral and to make sure everything is you know cross-examined and put to some sort of litmus test. But I think there is a little bit of a fine line and how far a tribunal can go to, you know, make the case of the other side and really question the evidence placed before it, but to not become an advocate of the other side and really just put the hat on of Russia in this situation. Um, it, I, yeah. wonder, I wonder if it would, it almost like has some sort of prejudice inherent in it. If you're forcing the tribunal to see the other side more than they would as a sitting, just as a neutral party, um, if that would kind of taint their views on, you know, if they just like have this inherent inclination to become advocates for the other side. That's... Yeah, especially the arbitrator that then typically is appointed on behalf of the other side, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the non-participating side. So if you know that you are there to ensure that that party gets a chance, even if it doesn't show up, you might feel, I, I, I think, I mean, basically it's very, very tricky. I think it's one of the trickier issues arbitrators can face and you have to rely on them to exercise an incredible amount of uh, diplomacy and uh, fair-mindedness because it's, uh, I, I could never do that. Right. No, absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, that, I think that's why they also, when you're choosing an arbitrator to sit in a hearing that you know or in a proceeding that you know that's going to be having a non-participating party you need to have someone who is well experienced to not only know the rules and the right. implied parts of the rules but to know how to conduct it without um violating any any sort you of you need a, a robert Mueller, somebody who's like bipartisan and everyone agrees is 
beyond yes. reproach. Exactly, exactly. And uh, on that note, final case, another state-state case, Croatia versus Slovenia, a well-known case that we also absolutely must return to at length some other time because it's such a juicy case. Okay. Do you know about this? Nope. Good. Then there are other listeners who don't either. I, this is the only substantive segment, so I'm going to allow myself to stretch my legs a little bit. I'm also a doctor now, so let me just <laughs> Oh, here do we this. go. Here we go. <laughs> so anyway, in November 2009, the prime ministers of Croatia and Slovenia signed an arbitration agreement by which Croatia and Slovenia submitted their dispute over territory in the Bay of Piran in the Adriatic to arbitration administered by the PCA. And this matters, I should say, on behalf of all the Slovenians out there, because Slovenia... I don't think has ever actually had any access to the high sea. They may have, yeah, should I look this up? Let's put it in a, in a neutral way. Slovenia does not have a lot of, if any, access to the high sea. And the dispute had to do with like the delimitation in the sea outside of uh, Slovenia and Croatia. So it, the way the boundary was drawn would impact Slovenia's access and they wanted more access to the water. Whereas Croatia, of course, is well known for being a place that is mostly by the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were proceedings and hearings and everything and then just a year after the closure of the hearing um, uh, the Balkan media outlets published transcripts of tapped telephone conversations revealing that Slovenia's appointee to the tribunal Jarnes Sekulec who uh, up until that point at least was a very well respected arbitrator who was even the secretary general of UNCITRAL for a while he had been conveying confidential information about the deliberations <gasps> to the Slovenian government agent in question and discussing with her how to place extra evidence supporting the state's case before the tribunal. Jesus. And this was tapped. And as far as I know, we don't know to this date who tapped it and why. Uh, so it's a whole spy subplot there, which is why we have to get back to this case. <laughs> but it matters now because uh, Croatia, of course, found this to be scandalous and requested the suspension of the case, then tried to terminate the case and the arbitration agreement because they felt that the arbitration agreement had been violated and, you know, the procedure uh, was harmed beyond uh, saving. Uh, Sekulaj resigned from the tribunal. So did also Croatia's appointee. And then Croatia didn't participate any further so the tribunal so this is whole and i think it was a five person um or i know it was a five person tribunal uh which is rare of course in in commercial arbitration but common in state state so they recomposed the tribunal uh the pca as the appointing authority um and uh, eventually the tribunal found to make a long story short in favor of slovenia mostly uh, it's, of course, more complicated than that. But Slovenia was rather happy with the outcome. Croatia was not. And then Croatia, of course, had not been participating. <laughs> uh, and this hasn't really been solved yet because uh, Croatia is upset. And it's, you know, the spice here is that both are EU member states, both Croatia and Slovenia and their neighbors, and they're supposed to get along. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the parties got a deadline until, uh, like, I think it was uh, January 1st, 2018, to implement the award and like redraw the boundaries, then Slovenia announced its intention to take Croatia to the Court of Justice of the European Union because Croatia did not implement the award. As far as Croatia now, uh, feels, this right. is, is like a non-valid award. And they, that's, they didn't participate for, for like the second half of it. So now 
Slovenia is arguing that Croatia is violating EU law by uh, not fulfilling its uh, treaty obligations under EU law. So that's that's yeah, just another reason to get back to this case in the future. I think once we know what happened, because it's uh, it's uh, tricky. They said that I mean, because I was looking for the water, and so basically, Slovenia did not have access to the high seas. It had to go through this like junction area that was mm. bordered by um, Italy. So Italy goes all the way down, and Slovenia would have to like go through this junction area to get to the high seas. But then I looked up just above it, and it says the disagreements between them were an obstacle to Croatia's accession to the EU for years. Oh, yeah, because Slovenia joined in 2004 and Croatia much later, like 2009, probably. Yeah, so they were just like using that. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and then arbitration didn't solve it. It made it worse. So right. arbit- no arbitration for peace there. Well, don't hate, participate, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we should also mention, just so that it has been mentioned, that the most famous non-participating party is Russia. And in particular, all the nine, ten-ish known pending or just concluded cases based on Crimea-related uh, disputes mm-hmm. against Russia. Russia does not participate. So it, it, it's, a, it's a big issue because of those many disputes that we won't talk about. Well, we will talk about it, unless you had a question on Russia. I did not. No, the only case that I've had um, as counsel where there was a non-participating party was a Russian um, individual. So, mm, Yeah, it so now we have down. a lot of data. 100% <laughs> of known cases, yeah, exactly. Russia non-participating. <laughs> <laughs> but what if, what if one of the arbitrators failed to participate and you end up with a truncated tribunal? And here the attentive listener will, of course, recall our earlier segment on deliberations and... Episode the, one. no. Yeah. Was, was it? Yeah. yeah, it was. What was episode one? It was PhD life, deliberations, and secretaries, right? Yeah. That's a good one. Wow. Too, too bad the sound levels were terrible, because that would have been a, a greatest hit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so in that um, segment, we talked about the CME versus Czech Republic case, which was challenged in the Sphere Court of Appeal, because one of the arbitrators did not participate, and that didn't fly, but you can listen back to that. Um and but there is and this uh, Dimitri pointed out there is an interesting provision in the LCA rules that actually gives the majority of the tribunal the power to continue deliberations in the event that one arbitrator does not participate which is pretty gifted I yeah. think and now actually this just speaking about this out loud I had to think about this I know that there is a case it's called Himpurna or Himpu, Himpuna or something versus Indonesia, an Ancetral case. And I know this solely because Jon Paulson was involved in it and I had to look it up sometime uh, out of admiration when I had nothing else to do. Uh, where, and we may, we may have to double check this before we actually publish it so that I don't uh, slander a state. But I, th- I think Indonesia uh, actually actively prevented their appointee uh, from participating in the hearings. Oh. After which the other two arbitrators still moved on and said, applying the onset trial rules and the like, general power to you know uh, to conduct the arbitration. That they said that in in these circumstances we can't allow for one party to uh, prevent the arbitration from moving on. The show must go on essentially. That would be an interesting like academic point to say at what like you know the mandate of your party appointed arbitrator. Sure, there's there's some sort of like soft mandate, but. 
you don't take instruction from the party that appointed you. No, exactly. So I mean, I think that's the it's a slam dunk as far as I'm concerned that the other arbitrators then should have the authority to move on because otherwise nothing would work. You would if you don't want the arbitration to function, you just appoint some lackey and then prevent the person from participating. Right. <laughs> Arbitrary for hire. <laughs> we should only say just finally uh, as well that we have the Puma uh, Puma versus Estudio case that mm-hmm. you talked about in that segment as well where uh, it's in the it was in the Spanish Supreme Court uh, an award that was set aside because one arbitrator uh, had not participated in the final deliberations as well so that exactly as far as we know these are uh, are the cases that have dealt with this uh, if you want to write about it we can hook you up with more but I think that is it for now unless you object Brian I would imagine you want to go on and talk about stand-up comedy (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no no that was that was great and I think it is it's it's very important because this will come up in anyone's career and it's just about really really sticking to the to the rules and the law to the T um, to make sure that you're gonna get a um, enforceable award in the end right very important very important all right let's move on to some comedy Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> so, Joel, thanks for um, tackling that last segment, and I think I will have to tackle this one since I'm the only one with a sense of humor between the two of us. Those were crickets. <laughs> if you didn't hit them. <laughs> Jokes. All right, humor in international arbitration. Does it have a role? Um, and if so, where and when? Um, I think, you know, Frederick... Rinquist brought this up to us and immediately I thought this was perfect for this podcast because we're trying to do exactly that is to in- inject a little bit of humor into um, into this career that we have that is so dauntingly serious all the time um, but let's start with the impact of humor that it can have um, and I think I just want to start off with to say that humor used in a very delicate way and poignant way can be um, really, really impactful as an advocate um, because you, as an arbitrator or even as opposing counsel, you it sticks in your mind. There's something about humor that if you have like a funny line in a movie or something like that, if it's a funny moment where people are able to get out of the droning on of your written advocacy or your oral advocacy, Um, It will help kind of recalibrate the room and get everyone refocused onto your pleadings. Um, So I think... Right. But that is, of course, the ideal goal. But there are so many traps on the way to that goal. That's that's absolutely correct. Not necessarily worth it, unfortunately. So you would say default, don't use it. I would say never be funny professionally which is unfortunate of course because there are a lot of funny people in this business uh, right that's what conferences are for <laughs> but right. basically that just by way of professional advice if i were you know talking to a, a junior lawyer or something but personally since i'm not a practicing lawyer uh, and have chosen to be an academic that th- this is part of the reason because i feel that there's more room for that kind of behavior in academia and uh, I really admire people who can be funny professionally, and I know a few of them, and so do you, but it's so rare, and there are more people who don't pull it off. 
Oh, I, I completely agree. It comes off as very cheesy and tacky um, and petty. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's also risky because, as we've touched upon in 500 different ways, we're in like a multicultural field. You don't know how it's going to land because you have 12 different nationalities reacting to the same joke with different backgrounds. And you can't just, the way we have just assumed the people listening to this, uh, enjoy the same TV shows that we do, for example. You can't do that if That's you're trying to, to convince a tribunal of something. That's a good point, because if you come with your slapstick American humor, every European is just going to cringe and groan. <laughs> or if you come with like some Swedish like self-deprecating, depressing humor that you guys have mastered so well, um, then every any American would just be like, oh, this is very awkward. It's but funny if- you should mention that. Uh, so, sorry, but I have to. I had lunch with Michael McGrath today. He was in Copenhagen. And I mentioned that we were going to uh, talk about this topic. And he said a bunch of things that we probably have reason to return to. One thing he said, which I agree with completely, is that self-replicating humor is the only one that always works. That's the only thing that is completely accepted. That's and maybe true. That, it makes everyone feel comfortable. Yeah, exactly. A joke at your own expense, that's that's the only thing. I, you know, 100% of the time it's going to be accepted. <laughs> like if... Um... If you're not very good at technical stuff and you're setting up the PowerPoint for your opening statement and it's not working, then you can say something of how much you're, how old you are. I don't, I can't even use a computer processing system. Yeah, I don't know. Right. It's like, um, sure, that yeah. does that does help. But again, it's outside of the um, the the real heart of your pleadings, right? This is like the banter before you get started. Yeah, exactly. Do you have any experiences with humor? Of, yeah, of being funny <laughs> ever. I mean. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a formal ouch. or professional context. Uh, in a formal or professional context, I have and they have not landed. Um, Same what, here. What I would, I don't know if you would put this in this category, but um, like throwing a semi-comedic diss to opposing counsel um, has landed. Oh, really? So kind Tell of me. where you're kind Tell of like me. making fun of the opposing counsel's actions or behavior or... Or something like that. But so I wouldn't say it's. I would say it's more like an aggressive slight than it would be. <laughs> I, I can't. You have to be specific because to me this just sounds like absolute kamikaze. How can you get out of this? <laughs> <laughs> let's say okay. Let's say opposing count. Let's say you're um, three minutes late on submitting something to the tribunal according to the procedural order. Opposing counsel comes in in minute two and says like, "This is violating our due process. We're no longer allowed to prepare for our." for our next submission because we've been like completely prejudiced by the delay and this hasn't been the first delay. Um, da, da, da. And then you could kind of say like, um, oppo- you know, opposing counsel has brought up an objection for this three minute delay. Um, claimant is bewildered by this objection and um, has racked its brain to figure out what respondent <laughs> has done in these three minutes or what respondent could have done. You know what I mean? Like a little oh, bit yeah, of a... Okay, I see you. A little bit of a poke. Still, still skeptical, I have to say. It feels like it's still just ag- aggravating things. Uh, no, but uh, I mean, you're the professional. <laughs> I'm just afraid of lawyers generally. In, right. <laughs> in, in this role, like opposing counsel, just sounds scary to me because I've never had to phase one. Yeah, I think people just get bored. They get bored of being angry all the time, so they they get aggressive <laughs> in other tones. Um, so you don't. Even, so in hearings, um, no. But I think that like you're saying the beginning banter and creating some sort of like bedside manner with not only like with witnesses for example i think it mm. i think it can be really effective um good point especially good point. self-deprecating humor m- most particularly because then it puts them at ease um and then you kind of say like oh uh, you know excuse me 
Is that, you know what I mean? You kind of like say something tongue in cheek about like how unprepared you are, but literally yeah, it's just like, like I'm just a stupid lawyer. Obviously, you're the engineer. I I, I don't know math. Please exactly, explain. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And those kind of things, if you kind of like break the fourth wall, that's a drama term, Joel. Um, if you break the fourth wall and kind of show that you're a stepping out of your script and be so I think in that it can be like it can be very effective. You're being relatable. You're human. You're not a robot. Um, yeah, right. On that note, where are we on arbitrators being funny as opposed to counsel? They arbitrators think that they're in a stand up comedy routine every time they're in <laughs> a hearing. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. And they have similar routines every time, much like a touring stand up comedian. They do, and you can hear it especially if you're the touring secretary for the touring comedian, you're just like you're just like, Oh, here we go again this, with that. Which is a reason as good as any not to go all the way transparency and broadcast hearings publicly, because then the arbitrators <laughs> will run out of jokes Listen very quickly. <laughs> um yeah, no, but I think I think they always use humor. Because it's not really on them to impress, really. Yeah, it's easy from that comfortable position. And it's like, you know, they're the boss, essentially. You have to laugh, or at least pretend to laugh, <laughs> which makes it easy for them to make jokes. You're so... I, I Have we talked about this on air? I don't know, but like this obsequiousness that you have to, that you have to laugh at your superior's jokes is, is demoralizing. Yeah. <laughs> it is. You're just like, ha, 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 ha. Oh, yeah, hearing just... yourself uh, fake laugh, it's uh, it's not good for your uh, psychological health. Yeah, I mean, the listeners have listened to my fake laugh for three seasons now. <laughs> 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 just kidding. Just kidding. But um, I... Who are you? I, I made a terrible joke uh, one. The first time I think I presented in an arbitration setting... There was something in Stockholm. It's a pretty big, like a high-level event. A lot of people that I have since repaired my relationship to. But I was invited to speak about my research, and I was like, obviously the most junior person on the the panel. And I started off by saying something about how nice it is for them to ask me to come here to talk about my research, which is dangerous because researchers like to talk about the research. And then I, I th- thought so. Took a um, comical break, and I said, lock the doors and look towards the people at the back of the room because <laughs> I've seen Ricky Gervais do that in a oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was he was super funny but it didn't really land and they were just like what, what's the people in, who worked at the venue just looked at me like what what do you mean and I, <laughs> yeah. I, I got crickets in the room like, uh, did he just instruct them to lock the doors yeah, so we don't get we murdered <laughs> oh my god Joel how embarrassing yeah since then I've never I think made a joke in public oh so you're speaking out of trauma that's what that's what that is yeah, yeah, that might be true. Got to yeah. get back on the horse. What about teaching? Can you use humor in your your teaching? Yes, that is true. That that I do, of course, but it's in such a such an intimate setting. And since I, at least these days, only teach in the same setting with the same people, you develop a relationship, so you get sort of a rapport that you could develop over time. And then the idea is, of course, to be yourself. So to me, teaching is. I mean, the podcast is like an outgrowth of teaching to me. And right. here, I think. From time to time, I've been known to tell a joke or two. I've seen some jokes in written pleadings. I, I don't know if you'd call them a jokes, but they're they're kind of like very like lame analogies that are you know it's they're, they're very colloquial and very casual. Um, and I think that's a, a someone's attempt at like I was saying before to kind of like diss the other side, but 
to do it in like a humorous way. Um, like if you're saying something about um, like disclosing a document that shouldn't have been disclosed, you know, when some sometimes you send a request to just for document disclosure and then you just or no, you you request to admit an evidence late, for example, and it with your request, you attach the exhibit, which is there's, you know, there's two sides of the coin, whether that's fair play or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's based. And so you'd say like, oh, well, that's we can't put the toothpaste back in the bottle. Type oh, of thing. Yeah. Or oh, like, yeah. and, it, and it's just like okay um i mean yeah. that's funny i guess because you have the visual of you like shoving toothpaste back into the bottle but <laughs> it's or into the tube but it's still like i think it's a bit lame yeah and it's so hard to be funny in writing generally speaking you right. can make up for a bad joke with delivery and charm and whatnot but in written form you're pr- more, more bound to confuse people than make them laugh it, yeah it becomes distracting i think you're right when it's just like when it's there and in I've heard I've heard someone in an opening statement try and like go off script and make a joke and then the joke was trying to be an, an analogy on what was happening in the case but yeah. then the analogy didn't work and so we kind of took that analogy and just like exploded it all over the closing statement because it was just like <laughs> okay oh, well yeah. you said this you're on the record and so yeah it, exactly it's, it's like dangerous. handing them the knife please kill me with this knife <laughs> exactly but you know because technically everything you say at the hearing is on the record and so if that's how if so if you go off script and you use the joke and it's the same thing like rhetorical questions it's like if you're going to ask a rhetorical question expect 10 answers to that rhetorical question you did not want an answer to yeah I, I you know this is unfortunately transcripts are harder to get by but that might change if things become more transparent it would be very interesting to have somebody like damien my data friend mine pleadings for the most common jokes in arbitration hearings oh because there's got to be a few of the like the usual suspects that we can't think of right now but that keeps coming back because i thought damien tweeted a few months back that he wanted to look for awards or pleadings that contain the phrase or a similar phrase to this is a very simple case <laughs> which is like 95% of the very complicated cases that are being argued or being framed like that there's got to be like a few placeholder jokes that you'll see repeated like the standard arbitration jokes i want to know which they are that's so tr- i bet there's a lot of like yukos jokes yeah yeah that's true just like at least we're not in you you know like something like that so you think yeah oh sorry we can talk about this off air i want to talk about whether he's gonna spin off these little you know research projects but we can talk about that yeah he has a lot to do I, i'm just gonna mention as a, as a final note then another thing that michael mike McElrath said today which is that we should have an iba rules guideline type of thingy for humor like what kind of jokes are acceptable or not and that <laughs> like a, r- a red green list of examples <laughs> oh that's pretty funny uh yeah things like yeah article nine right it's like jokes that can be admissible yeah, exactly. in this arbitration a jokes about your mother not my mother stuff like that <laughs> great okay a call call to arms from the arbitration community to come up with <laughs> guideline for jokes you, this is actually really funny because I was coming in here being like humor does have a place in arbitration and now I'm out being like it should never be there at all. I didn't really think you about that. Properly. Said the person who has recorded almost 55 episodes of arbitration jokes on air. <laughs> yeah, puns. Oh, none of those. Yeah. Okay, I love puns, but that that's another kind because of you're from Gothenburg, so. Exactly, exactly. Um, all right, well, 
there is our episode and we are excited to we only have maybe one, one maybe two episodes left probably one left for this season so and they're gonna be sort of um special all of them you'll be in paris we'll be in dc i'll be in california hopefully we can pick up some audio content content from uh, all of these places and do something uh, a little bit out of the ordinary for the remaining episode yeah the parentheses episodes that would be great. Um, follow us at the Arb Station on Twitter. Email us at arbitrationstation at gmail.com. Um, send us requests to speak at your conferences as well. Um, <laughs> we are excited to keep meeting people on the road. It's always nice when people introduce themselves and say they've listened to the podcast. So. Yes, and I want to, in addition to thanking Dmitry Menikov, who keeps us floating with his research, and, and, and Luke Peterson, I also want to thank the the many people actually who have reached out people that i know and people that i don't know uh, who listened to the podcast and congratulated me on my successful defense that made me feel uh, that's nice very well i'm very happy yes um congratulations can come to me as well thank you um for nothing (laughs) (laughs) um all right joel will you enjoy the rest of your evening you too talk to you soon and see you in washington district of columbia 